You're listening to the Choosing Freedom Podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Robison. Every day we have the choice to walk in the freedom Christ offers or to lay it down in surrender to something other than the abundant life we are meant to live. God is actively pursuing you. He has an amazing plan for your life, and that plan includes walking in freedom. The Choosing Freedom Podcast is a place for us to discuss how we strategically apply the truth of who God says we are to the lies we believe and the challenges we face. So bring your brokenness, insecurities, and whatever holds you back and join us for authentic conversations about real issues, real hope, and real life change. This podcast is our way of sharing deep conversations when we can't literally sit across from one another over cups of coffee, because that would be my preference. I would love to hear your story. I crave deep conversations because I believe they lead to life change. And even though the changes don't usually come all at once, they often begin with a light bulb moment from a perspective we haven't thought of before. If you've listened to the introductory episode or episode one on how we begin choosing our freedom, you know that tackling the lies we believe with the weapons God gives us is the premise of the Choosing Freedom podcast. If you haven't listened to episode one, please go back and make sure you've jotted down some of those fighting scriptures, because no matter what your life looks like in this season, you're going to need those weapons of warfare in your arsenal. Recognizing lies, applying truths, and claiming who God says we are rock the foundation of deception and sabotage that we sometimes find ourselves standing on. And quite often, if not most often, we have no idea we are standing in a combat zone because it it just feels like life. Maybe it feels like those are just the cards we've been dealt and we haven't yet discerned that we are in a battle. And while we are not told that life is supposed to be easy, we should also stand guard against the viewpoint that it was meant to be hopeless or without purpose. And it was never meant to be weathered alone, which leads me to today's question. Does the phrase, alone in a crowded room resonate with you? Do you know the feeling I'm talking about that not in our stomach? Maybe our heart starts to race or we feel like our face and neck flush. There are people all around, but the connection is missing. We may feel insecure, uneasy, like we don't belong. Sometimes it may even feel like sadness, like an overall sense of unworthiness. I think sometimes it's kind of the grown-up version of the awkward junior high dance, surrounded by people dressed to the nines, trying to present themselves as confident and self-assured, yet actually feeling anxious or intimidated, wanting to dance, but at the same time, horrified at the potential of looking foolish or even being overlooked, but still hoping someone will validate our worthiness, that someone will reassure us that we belong in that room. Status or prestige doesn't exempt us. Looking like we have it all together doesn't excuse us. Being a leader doesn't mean we never deal with it. This is a hard truth about a touchy subject, but sometimes we may feel alone in places that were originally intended to make us feel cared for and included, like churches. Matthew West sings a song called Truth Be Told. One of the verses says, there's a sign on the door that says, come as you are but I doubt it because if we lived like that was true, 
every Sunday morning pew would be crowded. I love our church community. And as a family of believers, we do a lot of things well. But as humans, we can always find ways to improve. Many are the stories of people who have been wounded or let down in a church building. And those stories always break my heart because it seems those people often confuse being rejected by someone at church with being rejected by Jesus. And that's just not who he is. God welcomes and redeems and restores. To all the churches out there who are thriving on mission and who keep that truth front and center, keep going. We need you. But it's not just someone sitting in the congregation who may sometimes feel isolated or disconnected. The Christian Broadcast Network published an article in 2023 that stated, New research shows pastors are feeling lonelier and more isolated, even while continuing to provide support to that very same group of people who caused them to feel that way. According to LifeWay Research's 2022 Greatest Needs of Pastors Study, 75% of pastors say they are extremely stressed and 90% report they work 55 to 75 hours per week. And on a lighter but honest note, how many of us think about the expressions on our faces during a sermon? Well, let me tell you, if you don't already know, there are some stern faces staring back at the individual sharing the message. And that's not something we often think about. So this is our cue to smile at our pastor more often, or at least make an effort to not look angry or super bored. And what a great reminder that the people who so willingly empty themselves on behalf of others need to have their cup refilled too. We need each other. We need to be willing to cross uncomfortable barriers and do things we haven't done before, like extend a hand to someone else who's trying to figure out their current season. To pay a compliment to someone who's working hard or serving well, isn't that what Jesus did? He was always crossing boundaries, serving without discrimination, welcoming people into relationship, leaving the crowd for the one. Those feelings of being alone in a crowd can be so uncomfortable that they cause us to want to push back, to just not even bother going into situations that stir up that internal discord, to avoid exposing ourselves to the potential of walking away feeling rejected. Again, when we experience the feeling of being alone in a crowd, it isn't hard to confuse who our enemy is. We can find ourselves feeling so disappointed or hurt or rejected that we focus on those emotions instead of focusing on who we were created to be. What lies are we listening to? Where is our identity in Christ in these moments? Let's think about what we're thinking about. Max Licato said, don't trust your feelings. Believe the facts, the promises of scripture. I want to tell you that you are not alone. And if you have thoughts that tell you that you're the only one, that you're isolated, that no one would understand, that is a lie. And in Jesus, you have the authority to break that oppressive mindset. Don't even entertain the thought that you have to be super spiritual or know your Bible from front to back to claim the promises and provisions of God. Believe it or not, there are many instances in scripture where we find people feeling alone, even though there was so much going on around them. We're going to dive into some of those stories in today's episode. But before we do that, I want to acknowledge that feeling alone in a crowd and actually being lonely is not necessarily the same thing. 
The American Psychological Association defines loneliness as the emotional distress we feel when our inherent needs for intimacy and companionship are not met. It's that unwanted feeling of being disconnected or suffering from unwanted isolation. Research tells us that there is a loneliness epidemic, which only intensified during the divisive occurrences brought about during the pandemic. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention states that social isolation significantly increases a person's risk of premature death from all causes, a risk that may rival those of smoking, obesity, and physical inactivity. It's associated with increased risks of dementia, heart disease, and stroke. Loneliness is associated with higher rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide. If loneliness is overwhelming for you, you don't have to live disconnected. Please reach out. There are resources. This may begin with a healthcare provider, counselor, or another trusted person in a position to support you. This may look like getting involved in church or community activities, such as a Bible study or a prayer group or volunteering. Serving someone else is shown to increase a sense of belonging and purpose. As Lisa Turkhurst says, you may be alone, but you don't have to live lonely. In many cases, we don't necessarily feel alone all the time, but rather in specific settings. I want to take this opportunity to share some alone in a crowd moments, which have been shared with me. Some stories are stories of hardship, and some stories tell of feelings of insecurity. Alone in a crowd moments can come in many forms. Each of the following examples was given with permission to share, and all the names have been changed to protect the confidence of each person. Jessica shared this heartfelt story. Before I found out I was pregnant in high school, I had stopped being friends with my two best friends because they had started partying and drinking and drugging. When I found out I was pregnant, I pretty much lost the rest of my friends. Then she shared that after she married, her new husband was always gone at school, work, or with his friends. Then her baby was born and she was going to college, surrounded by lots of people, but she felt completely alone. Soon came another precious baby and even though she was dedicated to her children and to making a young and stressed marriage work as well as go to school, her loneliness only intensified. She told me how she would invite family to come over for visits, but the focus was always on the children and she still felt completely alone. She said, I always did my best to portray a happy family. All these times I was surrounded by people, but no one knew how alone I was. I contemplated suicide a lot but I never attempted it because I couldn't do it to my children. No one in the crowd around me knew what was going on. They only knew the story she let them see. While Jessica experienced feeling alone in a crowd, she also felt a deep sense of loneliness. These are the moments when we especially need to feel connection. And her story is a reminder that we all have the opportunity to pour into the lives of others. Even if our idea of reaching out seems small or insignificant, for someone who needs support, small gestures of kindness can make all the difference. Psalm 139 reminds us that even the deepest of the deep cannot separate us from God. Beginning in verse 8, If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. 
If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. We can plug our specific circumstances into this verse. If I find myself in a place I don't want to be, you are there. If I find myself in a place I shouldn't be, you are there. If I find myself in a place I never planned to go again, you are there. If my circumstances overwhelm me to the point of breaking, you are there. Thank you, God, that even the darkness is not dark to you. That is so hopeful, y'all. But sometimes we need to be reminded. Sometimes we need someone to invite us into community. But at the same time, we can't wait on an invitation at the risk of retreating into deeper separation. John Maxwell said, you don't overcome challenges by making them smaller, but by making yourself bigger. Jessica persevered. She worked hard. She didn't give up. She finished college, and now she has a successful career and three amazing children who love her and who love God. To quote John Maxwell again, Life is 10% of what happens to me and 90% of how I react to it. Michelle is a young wife and a working mom, and she shared, When I was younger and went to a Bible study or a conversation got brought up about Jesus or anything Bible-related, I usually never talked because I never felt like I had a good enough understanding of the Bible. I normally felt alone and never talked with anyone about that until I was older. Even now, I don't always feel like I should speak up because I know certain people in the room have studied more than I have, and I don't want to sound dumb. Doesn't that sound familiar? Not wanting to speak up because we don't feel like we can contribute as much as someone else or because we don't want to be embarrassed by whatever may fall out of our mouths when we're nervous. So often we leave opportunities for growth on the table for fear of looking or sounding foolish. Where is that way of thinking rooted? Ask God that question. God, where is this coming from? Then prepare to form a strategy because we aren't just going to sit here with a less than frame of mind. Rachel has been struggling with health issues and is recovering from a recent heart attack. She shared how she often feels alone in a crowded room at work, stroking the ego of her narcissistic boss while feeling targeted and punished for her honesty. Some days she said she feels like she's dying inside, knowing she's pouring her heart into emotional and difficult work, caring for people with catastrophic injuries who need what she has to offer, all the while feeling like her heart is being crushed behind the scenes by a ruthless boss. She described the struggle of intellectually recognizing the narcissism, but feeling hopeless to improve her current situation. She said, quote, that's what I deal with every day. It takes its toll on you physically. You put in place helpers like four times the amount of insulin to get the blood sugar down because your body fills itself with cortisol from stress. You pray. You do what makes you feel better as a professional, knowing your work is God's work through you. Unquote. Yet having a heart attack in the midst of this turmoil is her reality. These struggles are real. This is life. These are real conversations, and we need more of them. Our next story of feeling alone comes from Ella. 
Ella shared her recent experience with loss and the difficulty of having to make a heartbreaking decision for someone she loves. Even though her faith is strong, she said there was still a time when she felt utterly alone. She spoke of how deep faith sustains us in suffering, but she confessed that it took her a moment to feel God's presence. She said human instinct may be to feel forsaken after a loss, but in her deepest heartache, God reminded her that He will never leave her nor forsake her, that He truly is a friend to the brokenhearted. I like to think that our default response is always to fall on Jesus immediately, but sometimes the truth is it may take a minute to get our spiritual feet underneath us and to start asking Him to carry us. If that's been your experience, once again, I say you're not alone. There is grace for that, and shame is not welcome in these deep discoveries of who we are in Christ. Romans 8, beginning in verse 35, tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Therefore, we can never actually be alone. And not only are we not alone, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Another good friend told of loneliness felt when standing in a courtroom during divorce proceedings. The glances, the whispers, the formality of it all, the uncertainties of the future, the sickening feeling of just wishing it would all go away, wanting to move on but still yoked to the past by legalities and old wounds that hadn't healed yet, surrounded by people but ever so lonely. Isaiah 54.10 tells us that though the mountains be shaken and the hills removed, my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. I think this scripture packs a punch for a couple different reasons. First of all, it reminds me that no matter what is going on around me in any given moment, His unfailing love envelops me. I only need to be aware to look for how He is surrounding me, and His peace will wash over me, and that cannot be taken from me. And then it says He has compassion. Compassion is a favorite word of mine. It makes me think of amazing people who demonstrate mercy and how I've watched Jesus show compassion through them, and I've literally seen chains break. It makes me think of the feeling of being validated and loved and accepted, not so much with words as with actions. It's like a certain facial expression that says, I understand, and I'm here for you. You are worth my time and you are not alone. Children are also not exempt from these feelings, and it takes intentionality to support them during these times. I want to take a moment and throw back to third grade. I had just changed schools, and the bell rang for recess. I headed out onto the playground and looked everywhere, but I could not find my best friend. I'm not sure how long I looked before I realized that she was still at our old school. I remember feeling so embarrassed that I was so confused that I had forgotten for a moment that I wasn't even at the same school as she. But more than anything else, on a playground that was vibrant and noisy and filled with excited children and the potential of new friends, I felt a tremendous sadness and completely alone with no idea how to process. And of course, no one had a clue. 
Now I want to share from someone I've had the privilege of spending time with over the last few years, and she has been an incredible blessing in my life. She's young, she's vibrant, and she's bold. Oh, how I love the honesty of my college and post-college friends. I savor their truthfulness and the way they welcome me into deep conversations, and I love the freedom to ask them challenging questions that provoke thought, as well as some vulnerability. During one such conversation, Olivia talked of multiple times in college when she felt like she was the only one like her, when she felt misunderstood or lonely in general. She felt as though people just didn't like her for who she was, even though she was very involved in sorority and athletics and all sorts of extracurricular activities. And I've never seen her without a smile on her face. I had no idea. She went on to tell me about a recent conversation with one of her best friends who said, I'm surrounded by a million people and I feel all alone. Olivia said, it's like no one is on the same page as you. No one understands why you are the way you are. And even though God is there, it's hard to be aware because you feel distant or you feel like an outcast or like your life is just different from everyone else's. Do you ever feel like that? Like your life is just different from everyone else's? I get it. But different doesn't have to mean isolated or intimidated and certainly not less than. So what do we do? We open up those lines of communication with God. We get real with him. Listen to these earnest words of David and see if anything he says reminds you of a similar time in your own life. In Psalm 25, beginning in verse 16, David prays, turn to me and be gracious to me for I am lonely and afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart and free me from my anguish. Look on my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. See how numerous are my enemies and how fiercely they hate me. Guard my life and rescue me. Do not let me be put to shame for I take refuge in you. David not only feels alone in his situation, he feels fiercely hated in anguish and despair. This is not a fleeting mood. This is a crying out to God. Can you hear the vulnerability in his prayer? He's not holding back. He wants relief and he wants it now. So he prays and he truth tells. He confesses everything that's on his heart. And God welcomes us to do the same, to bring our vulnerabilities and struggles and cry out to him. Psalm 138.3 says, When I called, you answered me. You made me bold and stout-hearted. Now, stout-hearted isn't a word I frequently use. And though I get the gist of what it's saying, I wanted to know exactly how it's defined. It means courageous and determined. David was praising God for answered prayers. He was acknowledging that he had asked God for what he needed, and God had supplied him with boldness, courage, and determination. So if that's what God had supplied him with, it implies that David was lacking boldness, courage, and determination. This is the same David who killed the giant Goliath with a slingshot and a stone. The same David who killed lions while protecting the family's livestock. Yet here he is asking for a fresh portion of boldness, courage, and determination. So how might that relate to us feeling alone in a crowd? I think it's an amazing reminder that God is ready and willing to meet our specific needs when we are willing to ask for it. 
Where is one area of your life where you could use an extra dose of boldness, courage, or determination today? Let's pray that scripture. God, your word says that when David called out to you, you made him bold and courageous and gave him determination like only you can give. I'm asking you for a divine dose of boldness to do what you have called me to do today, for courage to push past any reservations and through any obstacles and determination that I can and will accomplish these things because you are equipping me in Jesus' name. There are some moments of feeling alone in a crowd that are just hard and we have no control over whatever brought us there. They are just more complicated and we have to persevere through them because there's no way around them. But in many cases, we can approach with a new understanding. We can look for a way to grow into and through whatever is in front of us and determine to come out stronger on the other side. Let's go deeper and discuss a hot topic. Vulnerability. Can we all just acknowledge that vulnerability is not usually much of a conversation starter? But stay with me. I think many times when we feel alone in a crowd, we feel vulnerable. And I believe vulnerability is often equated with weakness. And while that may apply in some circumstances, I think vulnerability gets a bad rap and isn't always an emotion to be avoided. Because in our willingness to be vulnerable, to step out of our comfort zone for a greater purpose, we open ourselves up for a new level of creativity, to new possibilities. And some of those possibilities could be game changers. The best friendships are built from places of vulnerability. Our marriages are ignited by new levels of vulnerability. The idea of opening ourselves up to something we haven't experienced before, or maybe opening ourselves up to experiencing something differently than we have before, positions us for a fresh perspective on whatever is going on around us. Instead of avoiding situations that make us feel uncomfortable or out of place, what if we take those opportunities to ask God what He wants to show us in those scenarios? What does He want to reveal to us about our beliefs about ourselves when we get this alone in a crowd feeling? And what does He want us to know about who He is and how He can help us prosper in these areas? I encourage you not to run from the vulnerability that has the potential to usher you into a new level of strength and courage. Brene Brown has an incredible TED Talk on the subject of vulnerability. If you've never heard it, I believe it's a real eye-opener and worth your time to listen. She takes the topic and turns it on its head. I feel like she takes the word vulnerability and strips it of everything that unnerves us about the word and turns it into a building block with limitless potential. One of my favorite quotes by Brene is that vulnerability is the birthplace of everything else we want more of in our lives. Let me repeat that. Vulnerability is the birthplace of everything else we want more of in our lives. In another Brene Brown talk called Daring Classrooms from 2017, you can find it on YouTube. She stated that in 200,000 pieces of data, she could not find a single example of courage that was not completely defined by vulnerability. And she posed the question, can you think of one courageous thing that you have seen someone do in your life that did not require vulnerability, uncertainty, risk, emotional exposure, 
This perspective presents the opportunity to ask the late Dan Miller's popular question of, what does this make possible? If vulnerability paves the way to growth and a better understanding of ourselves, because we're facing these uncomfortable feelings with a new perspective, and we're considering how welcoming vulnerability allows God to propel us toward things we haven't imagined yet, then what do we do with the feelings and emotions we need to overcome to put that wheel in motion? How do we handle those alone in a crowd moments with a level of vulnerability that allows the doors to swing open and reveal boldness and courage and determination? Deuteronomy 31.8 tells us, The Lord Himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Psalm 139.5 says, You hem me in, behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Both of these scriptures tell us that He goes before us. The first few steps are not ours, they're His. And I love the thought of being hemmed in by God, surrounded on all sides. And I agree that this knowledge is too wonderful for me, too big for me to wrap my mind around. But I want it, and I think you want it too. This is another one of those times when I want to pray to lay hold of a promise from Scripture. Father, thank you that you go before me and behind me that you hem me in on all sides. Help me feel your presence in a way I have never been able to comprehend before. Thank you that you promise to never leave me or forsake me. Make me courageous. Take away every fear you have found in me. Help me to encourage others the way you have encouraged me. In Jesus' name. There are numerous examples in the Bible of being alone in a crowd and calling out to God. But for this episode, let's take a quick look into the book of Esther. This is such an interesting story, and we are going to jump over a lot of details, which I hope we can revisit in another episode, because we could really dig into the subject of identity with these characters, but we'll save that for another day. The story is set in the Persian Empire, and most of the action takes place in the king's palace in Susa which was the capital of Persia. King Xerxes lived a lavish lifestyle and was known as one of the wealthiest rulers in the world. We're told in the third year of his reign, he hosted a massive banquet, aka a serious throwdown. This was apparently commonplace for wealthy kings before going to war. For 180 days, we are told he partied with military leaders, princes, nobles, and officials with the goal of flaunting his wealth. At the end of the six-month party, he throws another party, but this one only lasts for seven days, and it included all the same people, plus everyone who wasn't invited to the first one. In Esther chapter one, you can read all the specifics of the elaborate decor, gold and silver couches, and free-flowing wine served in goblets of gold. Everyone was instructed to drink as much as they wanted. So on the seventh day of this party, which was the 187th day since the previous party started, verse 10 tells us that King Xerxes was plastered. That's my paraphrase. Plastered with wine and commanded that Queen Vashti be brought to him. And I quote, wearing her royal crown, unquote, so that he could display her to all his friends because she was so beautiful. Now, 
The queen was also hosting her own party for the ladies in the palace when she received his order. It's also noteworthy that many scholars believe the king requested she show up wearing only her crown. Whether she chose not to parade naked in front of her drunken husband and his buddies, or there was another reason, she turned him down. Needless to say, as one of the richest rulers in the world who clearly loved to call the shots, not to mention being intoxicated, King Xerxes was furious. Queen Vashti was never allowed to come into the presence of the king again, and a plan was made to, and I quote, give her royal position to someone better than she. The king issued an order, and virgins from across the kingdom were brought and put under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch. Now, prior to this, a young Jewish woman named Hadassah was being raised by her Jewish cousin Mordecai because her parents had died. Mordecai urged her to change her name to Esther to hide her Jewish nationality. She did as he asked, and when she was taken to the palace, she quickly found favor with Haggai. He gave her maids, special food, and special treatment. It would be 12 months of preparation before she would go before the king. When King Xerxes met Esther, we are told she found great favor with the king, so much so that he placed a royal crown upon her head and made her his new queen and threw another party. At one point in the story, Mordecai overheard a plot to kill the king, and he sent word to Esther, who told the king, and his life was spared. Now we meet a real troublemaker. King Xerxes had a right-hand man named Haman. Haman is described as arrogant and self-centered, and he had his own goals for the future. He also hated Mordecai because Mordecai would not bow down to him. And this was a hard blow to Haman's ego. So Haman made a plan to not only get rid of Mordecai, but all of Mordecai's people, the Jews. The guy had some serious issues. Through some manipulation, Haman convinces the king that all Jews should be killed, and he literally rolls the dice to choose the date, and they have another party. The king didn't realize that Esther or Mordecai were Jewish. Orders were given to each province to abolish all of the Jews, men, women, and children, on one specific day. The Jewish people were devastated. And when Mordecai found out what was about to take place— he immediately sent a message to Esther and requested she go to the king and beg for mercy for her people. Now let's remember that even though Esther had more rights as queen than the concubines, she still had few rights, especially after replacing an outcast queen who had been banished for embarrassing and turning down the king. Plus, there was even a law that if anyone approached the king without being summoned, they were to immediately be put to death. The only exception was for the king to extend his scepter to him to spare his life. And on top of that, the king had not requested to see Esther in 30 days. So she sent this information back to her cousin Mordecai, and he sent the following response to her. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from another place but you and your father's family will perish. And then came this well-known statement, who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. When Esther heard this, she told Mordecai to gather all the Jews in Susa and fast for her, and that she and her maids would do the same for three days. At the end of the fast, Esther planned to go before the king, and she stated, 
If I perish, I perish. So at the end of the three days of fasting, Esther prepared to go to the king. She gets herself all dolled up in her royal robes and is looking her best. And then she walks toward the king's hall. And when she made it to the inner court where the king could see her, she just stood there in his line of view. So let's think about this for a moment. She is dressed in the best of everything she owns. And she knows today is a monumental day in her life. Either she lives or she dies. Today, she needs to be accepted. She is longing for the king's approval and for him to show compassion toward her when she shows up without invitation. I'm guessing that palace felt enormous and confining all at the same time. And the guards of the palace staff must have been on the edge of their seats wondering what was about to happen. If for just one moment, we can pretend that we don't know how the story ends, we can imagine that this was a serious alone in a crowded room moment for Esther. And then the Bible tells us that the king liked what he saw and extended the golden scepter. She's in. I'm going to move really quickly here and not really do this entire story justice just for the sake of time. But because of her bravery, her willingness to step out of her comfort zone, to risk vulnerability, to do what she knew she was being called as well as positioned to do, God's people, the Jews, were spared from literal annihilation. Zephaniah three seventeen says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you but will rejoice over you with singing. When we feel alone, how might our perspective shift if we could visually see him surrounding us, protecting us, if we could literally see him in his mighty warrior armor? Ponder him taking delight in you. I find this incredibly difficult. I mean, how often do we really give thought to God delighting in us? I don't spend nearly enough time asking God, how he sees me, and chances are that you have an opportunity for growth there too. What does it look like for him to delight in us? Delighting provokes smiles and a clear enjoyment of being together. I really just want to sit with that for a moment. Did you know that you delight the heart of God? Another word for delight is captivate. You captivate his heart. You bring him joy. He sings over you. Y'all, what do we even do with that? And how does claiming those truths shift our positioning, our perspective, the next time we feel alone in a crowd? Do this with me for just a second. Just imagine walking in this crowded room with a mighty warrior who surrounds you on all sides. And while he's surrounding you, he is delighted in you. And if you think you hear music, Yeah, that's just your mighty warrior singing over you. This blows my mind. And you know what else blows my mind? How often I forget. How often I am caught up in the events of the day and I never even pause to say, thank you for delighting in me. And even though I don't understand that, it comforts my soul. And the thought of you singing over me when I'm not even paying you any attention It breaks my heart and brings me comfort at the same time. How can we remember that the God of the Bible, of the book of Esther and of Psalms, 
is for us. In moments when you cannot see his hand, trust his heart. Remember when we talked about Olivia earlier? She went on to say she is comforted and feels included when she is around someone who believes the way she does. We need community. Lisa Bevere reminds us that brave is not something you feel. It's something you do. And fear, oh, that's going to come. We've talked about that before. And in the name of Jesus, we will continue to nail fear to the wall. Jamie Winship said, the fear points to the deepest lie you believe about God or yourself or another. That's what fear is valuable for, pointing to the lie we are believing. That's a solid truth. So let's think ahead toward our strategy. How do we want to choose to respond the next time we start to feel alone in a crowded room? Let's practice claiming who God says we are. Let's practice claiming the promise that He is always with us before and behind, hemming us in. We are never truly alone. Expose yourself to encouraging books, podcasts, people who inspire you or breathe life into you. Look for ways to be that source of encouragement for someone else. I want to encourage you to thank God that He is able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. Let's ask him to help us live from that mindset, to remind us that he is capable of using his limitless power and resources to lead us in directions we never considered possible. Make a plan. Before the next event where you feel like this feeling may show up, practice being intentional. Walk into a more comfortable setting with other people and practice the basics. Show up with the intention to share what you have been given acceptance, compassion, help someone else feel like they belong in that space. John Bunyan is quoted as saying, you have not lived today until you have done something for someone who can never repay you. Jim Rohn stated, only by giving are you able to receive more than you already have. Remind yourself of who God says you are. You aren't planning to get your identity from anyone else in the room. Walk in looking for someone else who's feeling alone, I bet you can spot them and I know you can encourage them with even the smallest gesture of kindness and inclusion. And here's a life applicable tip. If you can't think of a topic of conversation, just ask another person about themselves, how they like to spend their time, what things do they enjoy. It's a great icebreaker and it's both validating for the other person and it will grow you in the process. Walk with boldness and courage and determination because your mighty warrior goes before and behind you, singing over you. Stand in truth. Share that truth. Claim your identity and choose your freedom. Thank you for listening to the Choosing Freedom podcast. If this episode blessed you, please help others find us. First, we hope you will subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes. Then if you're enjoying the show, take a moment to rate and review the podcast. This makes it easier for others to find us. And it is a great way for us to get to know a little bit about you. We would also love for you to share this episode with someone you care about. You can follow Choosing Freedom on Instagram and Facebook at Choosing Freedom Podcast and on Twitter at I Chose Freedom 23. If you or someone you know have a testimony that relates to your freedom in Christ and you would like for us to consider reading it on a few future episode, email us at choosingfreedompodcast at gmail.com. We are so grateful for you and look forward to our next time together on the Choosing Freedom Podcast.